Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today, we begin our discussion of the Star Trek The Next Generation novel, Q Squared, by Peter David. I'm excited! (laughs) I read the section that we agreed we would read, and then I read past that thinking, A, this is great, I can't put it down, and B, maybe there's not enough to talk about in one episode, but you have these really detailed notes, which I think are great, and... Also, my computer is giving me trouble, so I'm very happy if we end up with a shorter episode. And I'm sure our listeners will be too. Okay. Well, so, yes. This is a very dense novel. Yeah. And I will say that we're in the sort of tame mm. parts of it. This is the setup, and it gets it gets completely insane going forward. But I think it's important to like have these discussions of the basic character beats before we get to the crazy stuff. I agree. So I think it's a good idea to do it in this multiple episode format and set the scene. And mm. then, it, I, I mean, I'm not joking. It gets crazy. It's a wild, wild ride. And in fact, I realized that I haven't, I don't think I've ever managed to read this novel in more than a couple of hours because it goes very fast. So I am enjoying the opportunity too. to sort of slow down and take it all in. Yeah, it's kind of interesting in that we don't even get to, like, the introduction of Troy and in where we decided to start. And I was like, wow, there's so much going on here that I I just sort of jump over. Yeah. So, you know, my first question here is when did you first read Q Squared? And the reason I wanted to start with that is because I feel like I've read this 20 times Mm. (laughs) and so i wanted to you know set that up and put that out there before we get into a sort of a deep dive of this first third i have very vivid memories of reading it first i read a review in one of the science fiction magazines i did not buy them because they were horrifically expensive like 10 to 20 dollars an issue i had an allowance of five dollars a week so obviously i didn't buy them that that's more than the book No, I know. The price of these magazines was insane. So I would go to the newsagent once a week and read them, like standing up. I was a very annoying child if you're a newsagent. But I read a review which mentioned alternate timelines and Jack Crusher being a very weak man and Beverly Howard being much stronger. And at that moment, Mm. I knew I had to read it. So the second it appeared in the library catalogue, I put a hold on it. And I vividly remember the day we got it because we sort of lived in this weird gated, it wasn't literally a gated community, but that was the aesthetic. And all the services were in the much poorer suburb next door. So I remember getting it from the library there and walking across this absolute desolate suburban wasteland of a car park, already reading it. And I got it from the library about 4.30 in the afternoon and I'd finished reading it by nine o'clock. Wow, that's that's great. That's a great story. Thank you. I was 13. I know I read it right away because I, I remember very distinctly having the hardcover. Mm. And so I know that I got it when it was softcover, whatever, paperback. Mm. That's what they're called. <laughs> I'm, having a, <laughs> I'm having a moment. Sorry. And, and the thing is, I wanted to mention here so i have a a bullet point of a brief discussion of picard crusher or pick crusher as people call it or bonk as i was 
told to call it Mm -hmm. in the tie-in novels that I wanted to bring up because I remember being amazed and excited that basically every hardcover novel (laughs) was was very pro Picard Crusher. Oh, they were. (laughs) This one is the most blatant I would mm, say, mm. but Dark Mirror, which takes place in the Mirror Universe, was supremely Picard Crusher. The Devil's Heart, I think that's what it's yes. called, which is a ridiculous, a truly, truly ridiculous novel. But it has a whole like Picard Crusher subplot. Yes. And it's very interesting to me as a baby shipper that... I didn't make it up. Right. I am pretty well known, honestly, (laughs) for making up ships that no one else sees and I become super obsessed with. But Picard Crusher was clearly like a premier ship Mm. that everyone saw, that everyone wanted to explore in some way. And they had to like make up these alternate timelines and alternate universes and weird pocket universes where it could happen and then you you know go back to the status quo by the end of the book and i just found that super interesting yes (laughs) and and wanted to bring that up as something that i noticed when i was a kid reading these it sort of solidified the ship for me yes i wasn't alone Yes, and especially as a Janeway Chicote shipper. And there was this point where the show was trying to say Janeway and Chicote were never attracted to each other and basically gaslighting us into thinking that that wasn't a ship, which didn't work, obviously. But then you look at Picard <laughs> Crusher and it is so actively on the page as something... Yeah, validated. Yeah. Validated by by exterior... Material. Like, pe- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by people outside of just the fandom. When I was a kid, again, I would go into bookstores and just flip through the books. And mm. anytime the new Star Trek The Next Generation book came out, I flicked through looking for Beverly's name specifically and Beverly Picard interactions. And <laughs> if I found several, like if I, okay, if I found one, I would buy that book. Right. It was a pretty rich time to be a shipper, I realize now, the internet. It's interesting because um, the tie in novels, the current tie-in novels and like no shade to any of the authors or or the people reading them or the people plotting them but romance is not a thing it, it is not a part of it not even like subtextual romance i mean honestly it's a little disturbing and again no shade <laughs> to the authors but kind of shade to society <laughs> because yeah i feel like we have moved away from something and I feel like like everything doesn't have to have romance like Mm. I'm good with there being lots of different ways of presenting relationships and you know I think that's great I think that's important but it's nothing like everything is very asexual and I don't mean like asexual representation I mean like no sex Yes, in fact, there is a profound lack of asexual representation, but also none of these allosexual characters are really experiencing sex or romance. Even though, like, 
on Discovery, Michael has had two love interests. We have ongoing mm. relationships in terms of Stamets and Kolba and Adira and Grey. Like, the novels these days seem very, very bland. And the only yeah. exception to that is everything by Una McCormack, because even though her stuff doesn't necessarily have much of a romance aspect, she gets so deep into the characters that it's like reading fan fiction in terms mm. of that depth of characterization. You could almost say that it's not just even a lack of romance, it's a lack of emotion, a lack of feelings. Yes, yes. For example, um, Die Standing, the Lorca novel, fridges his love interest for whom he is about to leave Starfleet without giving her a single line of dialogue. Reasons I haven't read that book. It's <laughs> pretty bad. <laughs> And I think there was a thing in the late 90s, early 2000s, where pocketbooks pivoted away from having fans and fan writers doing the novels mm. and turned to more professional, professional tie-in writers. And Una McCormack is the exception to that. She was sort of noticed because of the outstanding DS9 fic she was posting on Usenet. And mm. I was also posting on Usenet at the time, and I did not read DS9 fic, but I knew that Una McCormack was the best. But yeah, I just feel like the novels have gotten very safe and very anodyne, and especially in the gap between s series, they were trying really, really hard to be quote-unquote canon, which is not to say there was no romance. There was some pretty great Janeway Jacote stuff in the reboot novels, but... None of them just go balls to the wall crazy the way Peter David or Diane Duane were doing right. in the early 90s. I think you're right that it's, a, it's a, a desire to be seen as canon or to be seen as, if not actual canon, to be canon-adjacent. Whereas there was a freedom in the earlier tie-in novels that, you know, you could build this whole backstory about, for example, Sarek and Amanda and it didn't really matter if yeah. it was true or not and i feel like that's missing and i preferred when it was crazy yeah and when it was wild bland is the right word i, mm. I get bored i get yeah. bored with those novels yeah. they don't entertain me because they're not telling me anything new and they're not telling me anything interesting yes. they're just re addressing what I already know and I, I don't care for that. That's not why I, I I don't want exterior stories and additional stories to like reinforcement is good mm. but regurgitation is yes. boring. I don't care. Like I will just go watch the show again. That takes less time for me. Also okay. we have we have archive of our own now. There is so much fan fiction out there. Why right. would I pay money to read something unsatisfying? Mm -hmm. And also, tie-in novels in general are badly written. Again, I think Una is the exception. Certainly there are exceptions throughout the Star Trek novel canon, but like, I realised reading Q Squared the other day that this is a badly written novel. I just never noticed because I was racing through it so hard because I was yeah. so thoroughly entertained. Right. I think that the the wildness, the, the, mm. the, it takes off and it goes off in, in really bizarre directions mm. that aren't necessarily true to, not even just true to canon, but true to character. And I don't mind 
because I'm I'm not treating it as something. Like I don't want my tie-in novels to be again just a regurgitation of what's on screen. I want it to be completely it's, you know, using the genre and the medium of a novel as opposed to a television to do something different that you can only do in a novel. Right. I want to know the inner workings of these people's brains. I want to have that like, you know, window shade into their minds mm. and I don't need it to be true. I mean, I, and I think this makes me new, unique, not unique, but like <laughs> different yeah. from certainly a straight white male perspective in that I want it to be something new mm. about this character and I don't need it to be true or valid I just need it to be interesting yes. because I see tie-in novels as an alternate universe already and this particular one is like <laughs> literally about alternate universes so it's like alternate universes of an alternate mm. universe and that is actually my favorite thing yes because I think finding the commonalities between characters and interactions in a completely different situation is like when you actually get to know who these people really are. Yes. So I'll give a quick summary of the novel. In the original series, Kirk's Enterprise encountered a powerful being called Trelane, who was essentially a proto-Q. He's a fun-loving prankster who is all-powerful. And at the end of the novel, we learn at the end of the episode, we learn that he is actually a child and he's basically taken away by the adults and sent to his room, which is a surprisingly frequent conclusion to an original series episode. <laughs> So in this Next Generation novel, we learn that Trelane is a Q, and our Q, John Delancey Q, is his quote-unquote godfather. As part of Trelane's desire to learn everything, we follow the adventures of several alternate, well, three alternate enterprises. We meet the first two in this third that we read, and Trelane creates a multiverse anomaly, which causes the timelines to break down. So it's into the Trekiverse, it's every Trek everywhere at once, it's <laughs> big, it's messy, it's full of fan service, it's got a lot to talk about. So where do we want to start? Let's have a quick talk about Peter David. Uh, I oh yes. I can't remember if this made it into a previous episode, but when we talked about doing Q Squared, I may have said something about hating him for killing Steph Brown in Batman, and that was actually Bill Willingham. I checked. I'm still mad about that. Not that I was ever in the Bat fandom, but I believe everyone was mad at Peter David for possibly getting the Scans Daily Life Journal community shut down. And with the hindsight of distance, I kind of understand why a creator might not be happy with having whole issues of comics shared on an open Live Journal community. Maybe. I mean, blame capitalism, not. Yeah. Yeah. Games daily. Look, ultimately, ultimately, the bad guy here is Marvel, which, right. you know, the more Always. things change. <laughs> but David was one of the big tie-in novelists of the early 90s. He did Inzadi, a, a book so racy that my parents confiscated my copy. He did this. He did a very controversial Borg novel called Vendetta, which almost saw him lost. About that. I mean, it's not a good book. Forgot that book existed on purpose, I think. Dean Roddenberry hated it, and he was right <laughs> to do so. My Peter David disclaimer is that he has said some questionable things mm -hmm. about 
specifically Romani people. It was problematic in the extreme, mm-hmm. and he attempted to apologize for it in a way that was not entirely appropriate either, but I will say that he he made the attempt. And in my personal reading of Peter David, and I have read many things because I was a comic book person for a really long time. I was a Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver person. Condolences. (laughs) Yeah, for real. I loved his X Factor and yet it's also had some issues that Mm. are his portrayal of mental illness is on par with Picard. (laughs) (laughs) So I I both love it and hate it at the same time. And so, you know, I I have some biases against him, but I also absolutely loved his mostly terrible (laughs) Star Trek novels. And honestly, I loved his mostly terrible comic books. I think that he is a very gifted bad writer. Yes. If I could write hack prose as well as he does, I would be so happy. <laughs> but and I, I we are gonna get to it. The casual misogyny that is evident in everything he writes. Mm-hmm. It stands out. It does not age well, as the saying goes. It's particularly notable that in the more recent line of books, he killed off Janeway, had Janeway killed off by the Borg to give Picard some Borg related man pain because there was a shortage. And this comes after many years of being intensely critical of Voyager and Janeway as a character in ways that stood out to me. I mean, I have a lot of things to say specifically about this book and specifically Mm. about his oeuvre in Star Trek that, you know, so I just just wanted to put that up at the top Mm. that I admit my biases and Mm. I really appreciate everything that he's done. Yes. For Star Trek, and I also have a lot of problems with it. I think a handy litmus test is that I looked at his blog, and in 2017, he said Star Trek with Discovery was terrible and not real Star Trek, and he looked forward to the Orville outlasting it for by many years. Ooh, I'm glad I did not see that. Hey, Orville, where's that fourth season renewal? Anyway. I'm not bitter, but I'm bitter. Anyway, so let's take a look at track A in Q squared, which does follow a sort of rail-based metaphor. We have Captain Jack Crusher and Commander Jean-Luc Picard, who was broken in rank after the Stargazer incident, when Picard froze as the Ferengi attacked and Jack saved the day. And then we have the Captain's ex-wife, Dr. Beverly Howard, and head nurse, Geordie LaForge. And my favorite. Definitely the best part of the air, everything. Yes, I was about to say that the next bit is my favorite, but actually, we all know that Beverly Howard is my favorite. And I love Nurse Geordie. But I am willing to jokingly say that my favorite is Vigilante Wharf and Prisoner of War, Will Riker. Truly, truly amazing. Like, Uh, okay, so when I say Vigilante Wharf, like, Wharf is not a member of Starfleet and not a member of the Klingon whatever he is like on a vendetta against all romulans yeah and all people who work with romulans and it is amazing will riker was captured by the romulans eight years ago and by a romulan named salan who is clearly the father of sila in our timeline (laughs) and a cardassian of no importance as far as i can tell will has been tortured for 
eight years. And so he, to the point where he doesn't remember who he is. Yeah, the only name he remembers is Deanna, his wife. Sniffle sniff. We don't, we don't really see a lot of them in this first third that we're discussing today. We are just introduced to the idea of Vigilante Wharf and, mm. and P.O.W. Will Riker. Riker is rescued by mm. Worf from Salan and random Cardassian who like literally you don't need to know them no there's a lot like okay there are 500,000 characters in, in this <laughs> novel and only I think about a third are canonical right and you do not need to know about you know 90 percent <laughs> they are not important they are introduced briefly and then they disappear I think they're important mm -hmm. in that you know, I have read this book many, many times, and I still only just realised the other day that Salan is Sela's father. Mm. Like, you get that thrill of recognition that you always get in an alternate universe story of going, hey, I know that guy. But obviously we're here for the Crusher drama. Obviously. Really, Jack Crusher doesn't get a lot of attention ever. Not in the show. Like, in the show, he gets as much attention as T'Pel. <laughs> Which is to say, none. I would say he gets more, but only by okay. a fraction. Only by a fraction. I mean, we, we never see him in reality. We only see holographic versions mm. or false alien versions. He is a prop to mm. set up Picard mainly and Beverly to an extent. And Wesley. I always say Picard, then Wesley, then Beverly. Mm. As, as a, it's a far distant third. He mostly exists because obviously Wesley can't be illegitimate. Wes, right. Know, Beverly can't be a single mother. She has to be a widow. There couldn't be a divorce involved because divorce doesn't happen in the future. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what ridiculous I have a lot to say about Beverly's widowhood, but right now we're sticking with Jack. In this beginning, like, he... <laughs> He does not spoilers for future episodes this book is not nice to poor jack crusher by any stretch of the imagination no we start off the first oh. line in this book is jean-luc there's something i've been wanting to tell you and oh. there are no pronouns for the first couple of pages so we don't mm -hmm. know that it's jack crusher talking about the prospect of a woman and an ex-lover coming on board and Picard, like, goes through the list of women it could be because Jack's a player, guys. And then we finally work out that this is Jack Crusher we're talking about and the woman in question is his ex-wife, Beverly Howard. When I read it, he talks about her as... Let me see. Picard asks what position she's going to take and Crusher smiled thinly. CMO, of course. Nothing but the best for my ex. And he speaks about her through this whole scene in this really sort of snide way. And as a kid, as a 13-year-old, I was like, oh yeah, I think that's just how men talk about their ex-wives. And now from the very first page, I want to punch him in the face. The <laughs> disrespect for a woman who was the mother of his child. A woman he at one point wanted to spend his life with. A woman who is now going to be working under his command. And he's talking about her like she's this irrational emotional bitch yeah and okay so the tragedy of jack crusher and beverly howard is mm. that in this universe instead of jack dying wesley dies yes and that they couldn't get past that and they broke up because you know their marriage ended because they couldn't 
deal with the trauma of losing their child. Which very is very sad, common. Very, yes, very common. But, I, yeah, I mean, I, and again, this is all t- part and parcel with what I see as casual misogyny throughout mm. the entire novel. Every single woman character in this book is painted with a a, a brush of, you know, that there's something specific to women mm. <laughs> that makes them this way. And it's a problematic. But in particular to Beverly, they broke up and he immediately threw himself into having as many casual relationships as possible, mm-hmm. I guess. That's the impression we get. You know, sure, okay, fine. While at the same time still sort of carrying a torch for her and wanting to own her. Like, again, mm. we're not going to really get to it in this particular first third, but he definitely has a, like, he, you know, he's allowed to date whoever the hell he wants, and she is definitely not. <laughs> she is yes. supposed to be sad about him for the rest of her life. And the thing is, when they first interact, when he comes to formally greet her, she is perfectly professional. She is very friendly. She's like, I think despite everything, we can work really well together. And I'm like, Beverly, no, you don't know how he talks about you when you're not there. Yeah, yeah it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. yeah. I really, it's... And the thing is that I want to like Jack Crusher. Right. Like, I, this is one of those things where I have been waiting for years mm. to get to know Jack Crusher. I, I like, Beverly, I love Beverly Crusher so much. And that, like, she loves Jack Crusher. He was very important Mm. to young Beverly Crusher and I want to know who that is. He's important to Jean-Luc and like there's there's so much involved here and I need Jack Crusher to be like this great guy and he's just not. And yet he is the captain of the Enterprise. He is the captain of the flagship of the fleet. He is the hero and you know again spoilers he does not deserve (laughs) like at all. He is kind of terrible. He is the worst. The book wants to set up where as he is marked for this, that, that, mm. that his life is a tragedy and and it can't end in any other way, while at the same time saying that you can have you can make decisions that have different ramifications, that you can change your fate by living in an, an alternate timeline, which is what he clearly does. And it's functionally bad in that way <laughs> because I end up thinking the worst of Jack Crusher. Yeah. Like not none of it like, it's not like everybody else comes out great either. But he is the actual worst by the end of this book and I think that's sad. I am going to say that Beverly and Deanna did nothing wrong ever in their entire lives. Their lives. I have this memory that I I thought of this book as sort of deconstructing the masculinity of Jack Crusher. And I'm wondering how much that will hold up on this new reading. Because you have, you know, he's introduced as this guy, he's athletic, he's a drummer, he's a straightforward all-American captain, the opposite of Jean-Luc Picard, almost a Will Riker type. And Mm. over the course of the book, he completely falls apart. And... I thought of it. Interesting. Yeah. I think that is giving a lot of credit. (laughs) 
reading like, is about bringing your own your own perspective. yes <laughs> i think that you are doing that i don't think mm. the book is doing that no, no but i will say that will Riker, mm. you can tell reading this book reading Inzadi, reading multiple next generation tie-in novels by peter david Will Riker is his favorite character. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, that's just true. He writes like, such a good Riker. Like, Riker is is actually great. Yeah. In, in this novel, multiple Rikers, <laughs> and so it's interesting for you to say that Jack Crusher is a Will Riker type. I think he's more a Jim Kirk type. No, I can <laughs> see that. I mean, Riker was conceived as a Kirk type. And as a Jim Kirk, that. yeah, but like, so. but the Riker that's in this book, and I think the Riker that is like the Riker that's in Picard. Mm. is the best Riker, and he makes Next Generation Riker better. Yes. <laughs> in this very interesting way, because you can sort of, like, write off the parts of Next Generation Riker that maybe don't get to that level mm. as, like, oh, well, that was because of this, or that you like, it's... I, I'm very impressed with... I sort of, like, when I watched 2009, Star Trek 2009, mm. I was like, wait, I think I like Jim Kirk. What's <laughs> going on? I don't understand. Because Chris Pine's version was so endearing yes and this sort of older wiser Riker is like oh wait I think I like Will Riker <laughs> like it wasn't that I disliked Will Riker but I just didn't really care about it. like he was like oh yeah Will Riker he's fine he's great yeah I like him enough whereas now I'm like oh wait I really really care <laughs> and I just feel really really like, oh. And I think that this Riker is similar to that in that he is still very recognizable, but clearly the author has more emotional investment yes. in this character than in the rest of them. You can tell in the scene where POW Riker is rescued because that's all from his point of view and he's being tortured and he's told to kill this woman who is probably Kira and... The writing is so good and it's so deep in Riker's POV and yet can switch out seamlessly to an omniscient point of view. Like, this is Peter David at his best. Mm -hmm. Also at his worst because I feel like presenting Kira as this shell of a woman who doesn't care what happens to her is just very telling. I'm unsurprised... Although I, I am saddened to find out that he didn't like Discovery, I'm also unsurprised because I'm going to guess he didn't like Deep Space Nine either. I think he didn't really care for anything after Next Generation finished. Yeah. Because also on his and blog was a post about how everyone pretended that Generations was a good movie. And they did, and it was weird. But you could <laughs> like I, I feel like that was where he parted ways mm -hmm. with Star Trek as a fan. So, Beverly... Beverly is interesting. Mm -hmm. I I enjoy Beverly in these novels. It's sort of a another love-hate relationship because there are parts that I really, really can get behind and there are other parts where I'm like, yeah, that didn't happen. I, I, refuse, <laughs> I refuse to believe. I refuse to believe. I think where she and Picard are reunited, and I'm talking about Beverly Howard, not Beverly Crusher, and we see through Picard's point of view her sweet face and orange curls. And I went, what? What? I mean, I guess Gates McFadden has a sweet face. That's not an adjective I would use for an adult. And I think we're trying to describe her early season three hair, which is sort of a permed yeah. bob, which is cute and all, but orange? Really? So he tries to use this, like, hair 
haircuts to describe different versions. Mm. So again, I think this is later on when Q meets up with this Beverly mm. and is like, your hair is wrong. And he like fixes no, it. No, he says, woman, what have you done to your hair? Oh, gross. I can't handle it. Then replaces it with a smooth, long season seven hair. Yeah, so um, and I hate I hate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just want to put that out there. Yes. Don't do that. PSA. <laughs> let women style their own hair, and just let it be. I will say this is consistent with Q's characterization as hating Beverly in particular yeah, and being really misogynistic about it. It's weird. Oh, I have a whole theory. A, he sees her as competition for Picard, and B, Mm -hmm. she has space switch genes, and he knows that, Mm. and it scares Mm. him. That's fair. Yeah. That's very fair. If you listen to Where's Beverly's Halloween episode, I have a whole theory which they read out about how Beverly is a space switch. Unfortunately, it involves Wesley being his own great, 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 grandfather. Anyway. Anyway. But Beverly is interesting. The various Beverly's. All the Beverly's are interesting. Mm. Should I skip to my like, what is Peter David's problem with Beverly Crusher? Oh, rant. Oh. Should I go to that? Yes. Okay. So I have some deep concerns about how Peter David, in particular, portrays Beverly Crusher, Beverly Howard, Beverly. We briefly touched on a rock in the hard place. Mm. An earlier tie-in novel by Peter David, which involves a 15-year-old daughter of one of Riker's friends who, like, hits on him. Mm. That's bad. Mm. Yeah, so we discussed that Mm. in depth. But in that same novel, there is this scene where the, I'm going to call him Mary Sue because (laughs) he's super. Peter David's Mary Sue shows up on the Enterprise and he is attracted or is interested, he's interested in Beverly Crusher and Guinan intervenes and says, nope, you can't go after her because she's been in mourning for her husband for all these years. And (laughs) and therefore, you know, you're in the way and you'd be bad. So go Mm. after Troy instead. So like everything about that is terrible. Like literally everything I just said is bad. It's bad for Guinan, bad for Troy, bad for Crusher. But in this book as well, there's this, really bizarre need for Beverly's entire personality mm. to be about Jack Crusher. Even track B Beverly, which is TV canon, yeah. it's mid-seventh season TNG. Mid-seventh season TNG, and they have like this, oh, let's have a, let's, you know, and you know what, I can, um, I can, I agree. That absolutely, Picard and Beverly share a glass of wine to toast Jack Crusher on the anniversary's death. I can absolutely get behind that. 100%. But her entire life <laughs> revolving around the idea <laughs> that she has to be sad about Jack Crusher forever? Mm. No. That's a no. It's a no for me. So, like, she's sad the next day. Jordy, like sees her in mm. 10 forward and is like, oh, Beverly, what's wrong? And it's like, oh, it's nothing. And it's like, you know what? No. And the thing is, the previous <laughs> day, the actual anniversary of Jack's death, she is teasing Picard about the visiting professor having a crush on him and saying, Ugh. oh, you should go after her. 
in that way where they've been telepathically linked and she knows that Picard is really interested in her, which is some very cute flirtation. But then you get to the scene where, surprise, it's the anniversary of Jack's death. And I'm like, wait, what? The suggestion is that all of that flirtation was like her not dealing with it. Mm. That she was like trying to distract herself from mm. her totally tragic and horrible love life <laughs> by fixating on Jean-Luc Picard's love life. And like, I'm sorry. I just, yes, it is traumatic to lose your husband. It is traumatic to lose your husband when you're young, when you have a young child, when you had a plan for your life. Absolutely, Beverly mm. went through a lot and that scarred her, but she is not stuck there. And if you watch Next Generation, she's not stuck there. No. By this point in the series, she has had at least one serious relationship, and I'm not counting the candle, and also multiple casual flings and flirtations and also teetered on the edge of a serious relationship with Picard. And it has also, like... Yeah. raised her son and lost her son. There's so many other things in her life Mm. that are going on. She has a career. She has friends. Mm. She has relationships with various men. And it's just, it's really offensive to boil down her entire character and her entire, like, relationship with her reality as mm. sad about Jack Crusher. Yeah. I can't get past that. I cannot forgive it. It's just very lazy characterization. And the thing is, overall, I don't hate how David writes Beverly. She is appropriately flirty and has that powerful sense of the absurd that makes Beverly such a lovely character. And she's incredibly strong-willed and a bit scary. That's Beverly Crusher. Or Howard. It's just the Jack thing. Yeah, right, exactly. It's just this weird hang-up mm. that becomes the shorthand for her character yeah and i just that i just don't like that i don't like that being what she's known for it feels very season one character bible too this is beverly crusher she's a doctor and a widow but by seven seasons later there's a lot more to it than that mm -hmm. i don't think deanna does any better in terms <laughs> of i think actually the writing for track b tv canon deanna is worse yeah, so... And she's barely in it. Yeah, I agree that Deanna... So in... in tra And we haven't gotten to her, but I, spoilers for future. Track A, Deanna, is track B, Beverly. Oh my god. <laughs> because she has lost her husband, and that's literally the only thing that matters to her entire life. She has a kid, she has a mom, she has a life, mm -hmm. but all she cares about is the fact that her husband is gone, and oops, now her husband is back. And so it's the exact same problem. Hmm. Track Adiana does have one other point of characterization, and that's that she's cut her hair short. Again, the fixation on hair. But track B, which is he can Indiana, in this in this, she really only shows up in this beginning hmm. to be invaded in her shower by Jordi LaForge, who was sent there by Trelane. Everything about this is bad. Oh my god. There is nothing good. It is not funny. 
Nope. It is not clever. Nope. It just tells us nothing about Trelane. It tells us nothing good about Jordy. And Deanna gets to like be very beta Z and like, hey, it's cool. I love being seen naked, which mm. is not great. But it's more than that. <laughs> Trelane in a fit of pique sends Jordy to Deanna's shower. His visor shorts out because it's not waterproof for some reason. He slips and grabs Deanna on her dot dot dot. <laughs> and the unspoken part of this scene mm-hmm. is that Jordy wants to ask her out. Yes. So Jordy has spent seven years mm-hmm. getting to know Deanna Troy and when he finally sees her naked, mm-hmm. he wants to ask her out. Right. That is a disservice to literally everything. And like, Jordi LaForge is not serviced well in terms of relationships by all of TNG, and yet this is still worse. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow this is worse than actual canon, Jordi. Mm-hmm. Like, like, everyone deserves better. He knows who Deanna is. He's friends with Deanna. He's spent many years getting to know Deanna mm. Troy. And until he sees her naked, Mm-hmm. That's the only impetus he has to ask her out. And, like, you know, canonically, she's already dating Worf at this point. So, like, right, what is right. even going on? This is a very powerful Troy Rucker book, but it's also got a lot of Troy Worf, and I'm really into it. So, yeah. like, poor Jordy. Jordy, is, Jordy deserves better. Yes. Deanna obviously always deserves mm-hmm. better. <laughs> and that is terrible. And, again, I don't think, like... Some things, like with the Beverly stuff, the track A Deanna stuff, I can sort of, I think that Peter David had an idea of what he was doing with that characterization. He had a purpose for all of that. I might disagree with it. I might have a problem with it. I might not like it, but there was a purpose to it. Mm -hmm. This is literally just a joke. (laughs) This is just, ha ha ha, Trelane did this terrible thing, and now we're going to laugh about how bad it is. It's very puerile. It's sort of 80s sex comedy <laughs> boobies. That's the punchline. Boobs. It's just bad. It's yeah. just bad in every way. And, Don't do that. Yeah, and the thing is, David is capable of so much more. Like, Trelane right. is sent to join the, the children of the ship in school and brings the Winnie the Pooh characters to life in... Cute! I know. It's audacious in its copyright violation which is I mean I find that funny that Disney didn't even notice and it's just inherently hilarious to think of security guards of the USS Enterprise being pursued by plush animals absolutely Worf's he's being pursued by a plush a yellow plush bear Mm. is like that's adorable that's like all of that is funny that is funny and then Riker says don't worry I suspect he has a very little brain I laughed. I was on the train and I laughed out loud. That's the thing is that, again, these men are Mm. allowed to have read A.A. Milne. Yeah. And the women are forced into this womanly box of Mm. widow or... Sex object. You know, sex object to be violated. Mm. And then there's Professor Martinus, who is both. Yeah. Who is is all of the above. She's an... Older woman, which is tragic. Oh. Riker is attracted to her, a, which is a great. Single, a single, older, 
a woman with a brain, with a career. Yes. Uh, yes, Riker is attracted to her, but realizes that she's into Picard. Mm. And, like, it's fine for her to be into Picard, but it's treated, again, as a punchline. Yeah. It's like, yeah. ha, 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 everybody notices that she's into you, but you're not into her, and yet you don't tell her because I guess you don't respect women or something. I don't really know why. He's not just saying, look, I'm not interested. Well, she's also not saying, hey, I'm interested in you. She's just flirting with him on the bridge and he's politely pretending not to notice. Like, yeah, but like literally everyone has told him I and know, everyone I else know. has noticed. And it's just like, it, this is stupid. Yeah, yeah. This is this is Picard being obstinately stupid. This is Martinez being like, I don't even know. She is at an expert mm -hmm. on time anomalies yes like that's her whole thing is that she's an expert and she is just realized that the enterprise deals with a lot of time anomalies and so she's gonna like follow them around and that's kind of cute i love the idea of this character i just don't feel like the execution is very interesting it, okay so this is what it reminds me of have you seen the first jurassic world no so in Jurassic World, the first one, and you know, I love all of the Jurassic movies, even the terrible ones. There is this character who is the assistant for Bryce Dallas Howard's character. Mm -hmm. She's an assistant, but she's basically relegated to being a nanny. And she's looking for the kids and going after the kids. And for reasons that I can't explain and that I feel like no one can explain, she has a horrible, horrible death where the dinosaur eats her for like a good 30 seconds and rips her apart. And there is no reason for the horrible violence of this death. Mm. And Professor Martinez reminds me of this character in the way that she appears and like has a purpose and has this role that she is playing. And then the narrative just punishes her for it mm. for no reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that there is just, I don't know why the narrative is so down on Professor Martinez because she hasn't done anything wrong. <laughs> and yet she is like the butt of every joke. Yeah, it's a little bit, oh, this older lady has a sex drive and that's very, very funny. Beverly has boobs. That's hilarious. Beverly has boobs? Deanna <laughs> has boobs. Deanna. Uh, Deanna yeah. has boobs. We, we had a whole conversation in our last episode about Beverly's relative lack of boob. I'm sorry, I just think boob is really funny to say. I don't know why. I woke up and I was 12. Yeah, but like, but you're not writing that into your novel. Oh, you no. You know what I mean? No. You're like, ha ha ha, boobs. But that's not a plot point. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. It's just weird the way that men including like Q, so Q, mm. Trelane, Jack, Picard, Riker, Worf, they're all allowed to have inner realities. Yeah. Like beyond just their personality, they're actually allowed to have their own thoughts and feelings and all of that is validated. Mm. And the women, like Beverly almost gets her own reality. Sometimes she does. Not entirely. Mm. Deanna really doesn't. Maybe Trek A, Deanna gets a little bit more, but not entirely. Professor Martinez is is, a, is nothing. She no. is a punchline 100%. That's all she is. A punchline and a plot device. 
And like you mentioned, Kira, whose name is said wrong. She's like a cameo. It's like, cameo, mm. Kira, hey, we're like, hey, you guys love this character, right? We're going to like totally make fun of her for no reason. That's the thing. This bit where the Bajoran woman is introduced and she's catatonic and almost naked and dressed in rags, that should be horrifying, but it feels like she's being punished for something. I think it's meant to be titillating. That's sort of the problem. And the Riker stuff is pure fan fiction hurt comfort. And I love Mm. torturing characters that I love. So I'm completely on board with David's agenda here. But when it's Kira, there's something else at play and I don't, I'm not comfortable with it. Oh, you know, also Satasha Yar's in this novel. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's dead in our track. But Mm. in the other two, she's alive. Yes. She's masculine. She's Mm. a part of the men. Mm. Or then she'll be sort of... Like a revenge, which is also a mask in. Like she's yeah, she's yeah. very she's very much like a Tarantino character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where she's she's a woman who is acting like a man. Yeah. Most of the time. But she also doesn't get an inner life. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't care about the inner lives of women. Yeah. The inner lives of women are all about men, like how Beverly is stuck on Jack Crusher mm-hmm. and when she's not stuck on Jack Crusher, she's stuck on John Luke Card. I don't think we see anything from the perspective of Beverly Howard or Track A Deanna. They're both perceived either through Picard Mm. or through Deanna's son. Yeah, you're right. Who is a boy? Hey, everybody. Tommy Riker. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I said I read ahead. I was trying really, really hard to save this for our next episode. But Tommy Riker is introduced with the note that he has the upper body development of a much older boy. So he's like 10 years old, but he's tote swole. Gross. I'm like, Peter David, what are you doing? This is creepy. I know. Also, disgusting. Also, I just listened to the Behind the Bastards episode on Steven Seagal, and he puts it out there that when he was five years old, he was like a gang kid. And so that's what I picture just this weird little child's head on an adult body. That's the thing. Okay, so you call someone Tommy. Mm-hmm. That's a little kid. Mm-hmm. I imagine a nine-year-old. I imagine yeah, a skinny yeah, yeah. little nine-year-old kid who looks like, you know, Will and and Indiana's yeah, kid. And I can yeah. absolutely see baby Tommy Riker. And I'm like, oh, he's adorable. Yeah, I you love know? Tommy. I don't want any of that. <laughs> you just said I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that on Wesley. I don't like. All of it is bad. It's just, it's so weird. It's this this strange need you know the need to make picard a player like yeah. why why is picard picard riker Worf, all of the men are players oh yeah yeah there's also a line a track a line which we can unpack in more detail later but about how Worf's gaze makes track a deanna feel naked I, what the i don't know i i just think like I don't want to psychoanalyze Peter David. I don't know him. Mm. I've never had an in-depth discussion of his childhood or his trauma (laughs) or, you know, whatever. I don't want to know. But there are some things in these novels. And, you know, we're discussing this one. But again, it exists also in his others. Throughout, yeah. That are just, it's like, what what is going on here? Like, what Mm. what is Mm. your baggage? That, yeah. that this is happening. I see it in my writing. I I write my my fic 
to get my baggage out of me mm. you know it's like i use that and so like i absolutely can respect mm -hmm. that that he is putting his baggage into his novels but it's also like you are being paid for this <laughs> also i'm not sure he's aware of it <laughs> yeah i you know what like i know what i'm doing i'm doing mm -hmm. it on purpose mm -hmm. i give it to a beta and i said hey is my id too much in this I don't think his editor is telling him that, like, maybe back off on that because I'm learning a little too much about your <laughs> inner life. And yet, I don't think this book would be so compelling if it didn't have as much id. If you don't have some That's messy true. writer id in there, then you just end up with the boring, bland tie-in novels that we were complaining yeah, about at true. the start. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You're right. You know. So maybe we want more. Like, yeah. Maybe yeah. I want more of this. Maybe, you know, I mean, look, I'm loving <laughs> Starship for Cards Season 3. I'm not going to say it's good, but it is amazing. <laughs> and I love it. I love literally everything. But also, it is mess. Yeah. And it makes Season 1 and 2, which are also, like, super mess, it makes them better. <laughs> Just sort of this, oh, maybe what I actually like is mess. I like Voyager. I like... And I've said that before, that I like mm. mess more mm. than I like perfection. Like, Deep Space Nine is too big, is too good, so I can't like it. And that sort of thing. And yet, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that it is mess. That, yeah. like, you can't pass off mess as, as good. Mm. You can't pass off mess as something that is, like, I don't, I don't know. I can't explain it, but... This novel makes me feel things, and I appreciate that. Yeah. And I want that, even. Mm. It's mm. like, I read this one more than I read something that bores me. Mm. Because those feelings are are more valuable to me than yeah. something that is well-written. I would rather feel something than be inspired by prose. No, I think that's absolutely fair. And I think, you know, I, I like to make fun of the fact that Una McCormack gets to have Cardassians in every single thing she writes, but also that's what she loves and it shines through on mm. the page. That's what makes yeah. her book so good. Yeah, you're right. It's that feeling, that feeling of I'm writing something that I care about. Yeah. And that's why, like I say, you know, you can tell that it's that Riker's his favorite character. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. Like, no. lean into it. Absolutely write the best Riker that, that you, you know, the Riker that you mm. love. Write that. And I, I am fully on board with it. Mm. Like, it's all good. I do, I wish that Imzadi, a book that... I have an interesting relationship with. Mm. I wish that Inzabi was written by a romance novelist. I think that is a completely reasonable take. <laughs> I feel like it would be better mm. if it was written by someone who prioritized the relationship. Yeah, because I remember there was a lot of action adventure that was yeah. kind of boring. In a different way. He cares. He Like, he's telling his version of the relationship, but I think that it would be better if the relationship itself was more important than the plot. Yes, yes, that's what Imzadi should have been. And so, like, I appreciate his feelings, mm. and I appreciate the way that they transform his writing. I just sometimes have some questions about <laughs> what happens, <laughs> and I wish that women 
were not afterthoughts. Yeah, I wish overall the editing had been just a little bit tighter with just a few notes to go, hey, maybe you don't need this scene where Geordie grabs Deanna's boobs. Yeah, it's just not necessary. If you're going to have it, don't have this whole Jordy has a revelation that, oh my God, <laughs> Deanna Troy's a woman. Yeah. Oh, did I never noticed before. It's like, that is super gross. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I have coworkers that I, I just, I don't want them to think of me sexual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm just going to put that out there. That I don't want there to ever be a situation where, like, I am put in a position where I have to explain to someone that it's okay that they saw me naked. That is basically me in my entire life. I just think that Deanna Troy deserves better mm. from reality. <laughs> that, that she doesn't need to explain to Jordy that it's okay that he saw her naked. And then, like, she has to know, like, that's the really disturbing part, is that she has to know that he's now attracted to her. Mm. And it's like, why weren't you attracted to me before? <laughs> I don't like that. It writes Geordie as a 14-year-old boy who's just seen a naked breast for the first time. And even Geordie, who is notably unsuccessful with women, deserves better. So much better. Yeah. But I really did enjoy reading this third of the book. I can't wait yeah. to go on. Should we save our conversation about Q family and culture for the next episode? Yeah, sure. Because it gets into it more. It starts here, and uh, the only thing I really have to say about it is that it contradicts Voyager, and I think that's enjoyable. <laughs> it contradicts Voyager, which is great, but also which it's very <laughs> heteronormative and nuclear family-oriented, oh, which Voyager oh. then adopts and runs with. I have one more thing about... I have to say about the casual misogyny. Yes. You know I love talking about casual misogyny. Why is God a man? You know, that is a, a theological question that can we, could keep us here yeah, for hours. Look, okay, but you is not mm. human. No, I know. Okay, the related question <laughs> is, why is Q an omnipotent being of great power and, and all-knowing? A man? Yeah. I was going to say a yeah. misogynist. Uh, yeah, really. I really, really hate the entire G because he calls him G. Yeah, yeah. I hate that entire section. Like, I have a visceral reaction to that section that is, it upsets me on multiple levels. I'm, I am very, mm. very offended by the fact that Q is gendered. I am offended by the fact that God is gendered. And I just hate every single thing about it. Also, Q's line about God not liking to be addressed with his name, it felt like it was making fun of Judaism. I just hate, like, that entire section, it's like a two-page part. It's not a yeah. big deal. Yeah. But I would like that part to be not in the book. <laughs> like, yeah. there, are, there are parts, even like the whole Deanna's shower thing, like, I hate it, but I'm okay with it being in the book. But this God stuff, I really, really... I. We just wish it was not there. Yeah, yeah. I think I think both of those sections can go. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Anti Matter Pod. 
You can find our show notes at antimatter.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts for some of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, all at antimatterpod, and on Mastodon at antimatterpod on the 10forward.social instance. You can write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks when we will continue our discussion of Q Squared. Yay!